America prepares. All America alters its pattern of life and work to meet the demand for protection. Industry is a double step to supply the sinews of safety, the armaments of war that an embattled world must have if democracy is to survive. Mechanical genius joins with the muscle of millions of men working to win for the ways of freedom. Freedom to think, to speak, to rise, live and plan with one's fellow man. America's vast resources are harnessed to the job of being the world arsenal for this and other democracies. Its present day production of armaments is but a mere fraction of the great job that lies ahead. The flow of production in plant and shipyard gains speed. Vessels of all types, carriers, merchantmen, submarines, slip off the ways in growing numbers. And the beat of feet sounds over the land. Feet intent on training, on growing fit for whatever destiny holds ahead. Heroes, everyone, heroes by the million. Men who abandon home and vocations that they may be ready to defend democracy if necessary. Sturdy of body, firm in spirit, seamen, marines, soldiers, and flyers. A huge civilian army joins in this great defense program. Rigid rough work, this training. Actual combat is simulated, conditions met and mastered. No problem that may arise will find these men wanting. We know, we know Russia will lose. And we, we really know the victory, the victory will change the world. And this will be a change that the world has long needed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard. Today's edition of this Human Events Sunday special, Ukrainistan, the battleground of empires. So we've just passed the one year anniversary of the war in Ukraine or should we say the kickoff of this phase of the war of Ukraine? Because some people say that it started all the way back in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. Others say that it began all the way back in 2013 with the Maidan revolution, which former President Trump just earlier this week, and there's no coincidence that he was talking about this, just earlier this week, confirmed was done at the behest of the Obama State Department. The US, NATO, the globalist American empire has been engaged in these operations for nearly a decade now. And what we're seeing is the response. The empire of the West versus the empire of the East. The globalist American empire versus a resurgent Russia, a new czar, working in collaboration with Beijing and the global south. The consequences could be dire. We're going to break that down. Not just the consequences for the battlefield, but the consequences for the civilians, the families caught in the middle, the innocents who are being killed, but also the even far greater consequences of escalation into a third world war with nuclear powers. From the Associated Press it states, Ukraine is waiting for battle tanks and other weapons pledged 
by the West, but nowhere in sight is a settlement. The Kremlin is insisting that it must include the recognition of the Crimean Peninsula, which it annexed in 2014, along with the acceptance of other territorial gains. Ukraine categorically rejects those demands and rules out any talks until Russia withdraws all forces. We also know from former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett of Israel that there was a peace deal worked out within just one month of the initial invasion. One year ago between Ukraine and Russia, between Zelensky and Putin. And Naftali Bennett said he was brokering this thing. He was passing messages between them. And they were going to work on a peace deal. Recognition for certain territories, withdrawal of troops, and a dropping of the insistence of Ukraine to join NATO, for NATO membership, so that the globalist American empire's military would not be on Russia's borders, that Ukraine would return to a neutral status. Well, it turns out, that was blown up by who? President Biden and Boris Johnson. Back to the AP, experts warn that Europe's longest conflict since World War II could drag on for years, and some fear it could lead to a direct confrontation between Russia and NATO. We're going to break that down for you and explain exactly what it would mean if Russia and NATO actually came to direct blows. In short, the end of the world. We're going to break down what that means. In recent months, Russian forces have tried to encircle the Ukrainian stronghold of Bakhmut, pushing deeper into Donetsk, along with fulfilling their goals of capturing the entire Donbass. They are weighing down and wearing down Ukrainian forces and presenting them from starting offenses elsewhere, preventing them. Bakhmut has become a symbol for Ukraine and Russia, as well as a way to tie up forces on both sides. Russia has relied on its massive arsenal and boosted production of weapons and munitions, giving it a significant advantage. This is the thing. Russia's offensive could be wider than Donbass. It could be a gamble. But remember, they mobilized 300,000 reservists. We're talking trench warfare. Drones using precision targeting to be able to take out specific tanks on the battlefield. What does that leave you with? That leaves you with World War I style, fighting in the trenches, fighting in the winters. Russia and Ukraine, this battlefield and this area, this land, has seen battle after battle after battle over the years. And once again, another empire from the West is fighting on this territory against another empire from the East. Is there a strategic national objective for the United States in this. There isn't. But what's going to remain? I'll tell you. Ukrainistan. Keep in mind that it was only a few months after the United States pulled out of Afghanistan that all of this kicked off. And you look at the results of Afghanistan after 20 years of war, cities destroyed, an entire country in ruins. Same with Iraq. Same as what happened in massive swaths of Syria. And what does the globalist American empire do? They move on. They focus their attention elsewhere and they pretend like it never happened. We act as if we didn't spend all that money, all that blood, and all that treasure. And more to the point, we've started up again with another hot proxy war that is only going to end in further death and destruction. We'll get into it. Come back here, Ukrainistan, the battleground of empires.
recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings, or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. But there are other communists who don't show their real faces, who work more silently. Coming up. Condemnation of Russian President Vladimir Putin as world sport takes a stand, from the football pitch to the Paralympics and motor racing. Bans implemented and events canceled as the door is slowly shut on Russia. For the first time in recent memory, we are seeing the likes of FIFA, UEFA, and other giants crumble under global pressure to take a united front. Russian teams are banned from competition. Sporting events are moved or canceled altogether. Sponsorships across all sports and divisions are ended. These are just some of the outcomes so far as the international sporting community moves to further isolate Russia. Information warfare has always been the forefront of warfare. So what you're seeing now is what they've said for a long time. It's been said all throughout history. The first casualty in war is the truth. And if you think for a second that mainstream media, corporate media, whether it be British, whether it be American or Russian for that matter, is giving you the truth about what's actually happening on the ground in Ukraine, then you're not paying attention. It'd be like watching a Netflix documentary and thinking that you know everything about a certain subject. You just don't. Those things are not made, they are not financed without a point, without somebody trying to make money. And they're making money by persuading you. They're always trying to sell you something, always. And in this case, they're trying to sell you on war. The type of information warfare that we see in the world today. It's very similar to the information warfare of the past. However, it is far more sophisticated. In the past, you might be able to put up something that really focused on your enemy, um, particularly signifying racial characteristics, ethnic differences, and focusing on that as the distinctive, uh, the distinctive other, member, this member of the outgroup. Of course, following 9-11, that was not allowed. Uh, America has become far more PC of a country, and so the propaganda must be much more sophisticated. Plus, because of the advent of mainstream media, people are not used to necessarily seeing something so in front, so in their face. So instead, what you end up getting is fake news. You get news based on anonymous sources, anonymous sources telling you about horrific atrocities on both sides. And you say, well, this must be done. This invasion must take place in order to stop those atrocities. Yet nobody ever actually stops to wait for evidence of them. You know, I remember talking to a friend of mine in the U.S. Navy who had been on the USS Kearsarge before the bombing of Libya that eventually led to the Arab Spring 
eventually led to the takedown of Gaddafi and the complete destruction of that country. Completely reduced to rubble. Because when you commit regime change somewhere, you don't know what you're going to unleash. You don't know what you're going to get. Remember, Germany tried this in the past with Russia when they said, we're going to knock Russia out of World War I, so we're going to send a train full of Bolsheviks and Vladimir Lenin back into Russia. What did they unleash? Oh, that's right, a little thing called the Soviet Union. How did that work out for everybody? So just because you don't like a certain regime, you never know what you're going to unleash. And the information war that we see now is always pushed in furtherance of regime change. The United States, the globalist American empire going to meddle in parts of the world where we want our interests, we want our rights, we want our power. But the problem is the narratives used to focus on this are always prepackaged and handed to you on a silver platter. The villains, the heroes, which side you're supposed to support. How many times were we told that something was going, remember the ghost of Kiev from early on in this thing, this hero that we were all supposed to support, the one that we were supposed to love, that we were supposed to be behind, it was completely fake. They were using video game footage. And I also want to explain to you the amount of social conditioning that's gone on in the United States since really about the same period of time. They are programming you to have a soldier's mind to kill. Whether it's video games, whether it's Russiagate, whether it's movies, whether it's TV shows like House of Cards, all of a sudden, we are being primed once again to view this country as our eternal enemy. And the question is, what's the existential threat to the United States exactly? Yes, they do have nuclear weapons. So do we. But are they threatening us? We're threatening them, certainly. We're the ones trying to push our military, the globalist American empire's military, towards their borders closer and closer every year. But essentially, what we're really doing, what the regime's really been doing for such a long time, number one, they're creating their villain. They're making them scapegoats. They're obsessed with them. But here's the real thing. They want them to be a scapegoat for everything that our own crooked regime has done at home. The gutting of middle America, the gutting of the South, the destruction of the middle class, that wasn't done by Russia, that wasn't done by China, that wasn't done by Iran, that was done by our own elites. Now, our own elites certainly have worked with China in order to do this. That goes without question. But of course the CCP is going to do that because it's in their interest. They're the ones getting rich off of all of this. That's why they're resurgent. And of course, what are they doing now? They're turning around and they're backing Russia in this fight, while at the same time knowing that because they have the United States by the economic short hairs, there's not much that the U.S. leaders can do about it at the end of the day. And especially when you have a president like we do, 
who has a son that's deeply involved or has been deeply involved with the CCP as well as Ukrainian oligarchs. It's simple. So the information war comes at you from all sides. You don't know it's truth. You don't know it's fiction. You don't know when you pick up your app and you watch a video. Is that real? Did that happen? Look at the power of deep fakes lately. Look at the power of voice AI modulation and cloning. You can make anyone say anything. And who's to say that the mainstream media would not use those same tactics against the United States? Who are you going to trust? The FBI? The CIA? After all the lying that they've gone through, go read The Plot Against the President or go watch The Plot Against the President by the fantastic Minimilius and Lee Smith. Everything is real and nothing is real. Everything is real and nothing is real. When you live in an information environment where you cannot trust anything, anything you see, anything you read, that's the real war. The real war is the information war. As somebody once said, there's a war on for your mind. Because once they control your mind, they control you, they control your ability to make decisions within the framework that they've provided. That's what the Overton window is. The Overton window is the set of topics, discussions, and issues that are allowed in a society. Some topics, some discussions are not allowed to be had. So this is something that President Trump used to push where he used to say, shouldn't we have a peace deal with Russia? Shouldn't we have a good relationship with them because they're one of the strongest nuclear powers on the face of the planet? Arguably one of the most powerful, certainly the only one that's up here with the United States they actually have more nuclear warheads than the United States. So wouldn't it benefit everyone if we had a good relationship with them? And because he said that, at the Helsinki summit, I was there. They called him a traitor. They said it was a treason summit. I remember standing right by Jim Acosta when he said that on CNN. And you had better believe that Russia's propaganda machine is on fire right now as well. Telling everyone at home that the United States government is coming for you. The US military is coming for you. The corrupt elites that run the United States are trying to destroy Russia. You see those rallies with Putin outside of Moscow? You think those people are paid to be there? No. Go look at any of the independent polls being run in Russia. The vast majority of people support him there. Why? Because they don't view this war as a fight of Russia and Ukraine. They view it as Russia and the West. Because that's what Biden and that's what Newland and Tony Blinken and these well-educated idiots have set it all up as. So you've allowed Russia to play on the deepest, darkest fears of their own people. And in doing so, 
you've allowed them to expand their Overton window to go even further than they ever would have without it. Great job. Great job, U.S. government. Great job, U.S. leaders. You've done very well. So because of that, you are empowering the worst elements, the hard line elements within the Kremlin. Do you actually think that there aren't people in there calling for the use of nuclear weapons? Of course there are. There are people that want to go hard and you should be afraid. You should be. In the very next segment here, we are going to discuss the realities of nuclear war because it seems to me that a lot of people have forgotten about what that means, about how many people are going to die and how many people would wish they had died in the opening salvo of a nuclear war and the horrific nightmare that life on Earth would become after. Let's face it. The threat of hydrogen bomb warfare is the greatest danger our nation has ever known. Enemy jet bombers carrying nuclear weapons can sweep over a variety of routes and drop bombs on any important target in the United States. The threat of this destruction has affected our way of life in every city, town, and village from coast to coast. These are the signs of the time. Only in practice now, a rehearsal, a training exercise. But tomorrow, this siren may mean the real thing. And if you hear it, as you drive in your auto, as you sit in your office, or work at your bench, Wherever you are, what will you do? What will happen to you? Let's face it. Your life, the fate of your community, and the fate of your nation depends on what you do when enemy bombers head for our cities. To defend Russia and our people, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to us. This is not a bluff. The citizens of Russia can rest assured that the territorial integrity of our motherland, our independence and freedom will be defended, I repeat, by all the systems available to us. Those who are using nuclear blackmail against us should know that the wind can turn their way. The illegal Russian offensive has been swift, callous and brutal. It's barbaric. Putin's illegal occupation of Kyiv and the impending Chinese blockade of Taiwan has created a two-front national security crisis that requires more troops than the volunteer military can supply. I have received guidance from General Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that the recommended way forward will be to invoke the Selective Service Act, as is my authority as President. The first to be called in a sequence determined by national lottery will be men and women whose 20th birthday falls during calendar year 2023. Remember, you're not sending your sons and daughters to war. You're sending them to freedom. God bless our troops and God bless Ukraine. God bless our troops and God bless Ukraine. What we just played for you was a sneak preview. Coming attractions. A glimpse into the world beyond. Now that was an AI, I want to say recreation, but maybe a pre-creation a pre-creation of President Biden 
designed and scripted by our producers here for the show of what could happen if President Biden were to declare and activate the Selective Service Act and begin drafting 20-year-olds here in the United States. That means if you're turning 20 this year, you would be the first to be drafted using national lottery. It would then go 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, then down to 19 and 18 in that order. It's the way it's written. Do you understand the gravity of what we're talking about? And I've talked before about the threat of mission creep in Ukraine. Because currently the U.S. doesn't have troops on the ground. But there's volunteers, there's defense contractors. Pretty soon there's going to be a question of what exactly is the point where U.S. involvement stops becoming just aid and actually becomes material support to the fight. Because here's the point. All those tanks, all those systems, all those weapons that are being sent across, well, those need maintenance. Do the soldiers, do the mechanics, the engineers in Ukraine have the ability to maintain U.S. equipment? Well, then we'll say, well, we're just going to send a few trainers over. Now we're just going to send a few auditors, a few inspectors. And what happens when one wayward missile missile strike, one wayward uh, air defense, some accident kills active duty U.S. troops in a war zone, even if it's one or two? The American people will cry out for blood. This is why mission creep is real. It's exactly what happened in Vietnam, by the way. The exact same thing happened in Vietnam. But here's the difference. Vietnam wasn't a nuclear power. Korea wasn't a nuclear power. Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, Syria, none of these were nuclear powers. Russia, on the other hand, is a nuclear power. So you better wake up and understand the reality. Armscontrol.org. They did a study a couple years ago working with Princeton. And it talked about Plan A, called it Plan A. 78 years ago, the United States tested the world's first nuclear weapon in New Mexico and then used one to destroy Hiroshima and another to destroy Nagasaki. As devastating as they were, these atomic bombs were small by today's standards each exploding with just a tenth of the explosive yield of typical nuclear warheads today, deployed on missiles, submarines, and planes by a handful of countries. Fortunately, no nuclear weapons have been used in combat since the bombings in Japan. But of course, this risk ebbed and flowed throughout the Cold War. And keep in mind, they wrote this in 2020. In 2020, Princeton, of all places, pointed out, the United States and Russia have abandoned long-standing nuclear arms control treaties, started to develop new kinds of nuclear weapons, and expanded the circumstances in which they might use nuclear weapons. However, a nuclear exchange might start, it could quickly escalate from a local disaster into a global catastrophe. And so they put together a simulation. I want to go through that simulation with you. 
The first becomes what we call nuclear warning shots. The simulation begins in a context of a conventional conflict. So the U.S. and NATO are are at forces. Now keep in mind, you could see this in Western Ukraine. Let's say the Russian advance, the Russian offensive, just for sake of argument, is extremely effective in Eastern Ukraine, pushes the Ukrainians all the way back to the Dnepr, threatens Kiev. Well, Joe Biden, as we said in the video just there, we played in the video, calls for a draft, sets up a Chinese blockade around Taiwan that he has to respond to. So you need the U.S. Navy activated. And then NATO calls for a green zone, a safe zone in Western Ukraine, particularly around Lviv. And they begin to deploy troops or prepare to deploy troops into Western Ukraine. So I want you to take that real world possibility and then apply it to this Princeton study from a couple of years ago. That's what we're going to do here. In hopes of halting the NATO advance, Russia launches a nuclear warning shot from a base near the city of Kaliningrad. NATO then retaliates with a single tactical nuclear airstrike. So we're talking about tactical nuclear airstrikes. But what's happened in this scenario is that Russia just blew up an entire NATO base and killed all the NATO soldiers there that were planning to participate in that advance. So in the study, they called it an advance, but couldn't we just say in this scenario that maybe it was the troops that were planning on securing the green zone in Western Ukraine? Come on, we're just going through scenarios here. This is all hypothetical, but that's the thing, right, folks? It's all theory until it's not. It's all hypothetical until it's not. It's all up in the air until it's in the air over your heads and over your houses. Step two, the tactical plan. As the nuclear threshold is crossed, fighting escalates to a tactical nuclear war in Europe. Russia sends 300 nuclear warheads via aircraft and short-range missiles to hit NATO bases and advancing troops. NATO responds with approximately 180 nuclear warheads via aircraft. Immediate casualties, 2.6 million over three hours. This is essentially the destruction of Europe and all European nuclear bases. What comes next? The counterforce plan. With Europe destroyed, NATO launches a strategic nuclear strike of 600 warheads from U.S. land and submarine-based missiles aimed at Russian nuclear forces. Before losing its weapon systems, Russia launches on warning, responding with missiles launched from silos, road mobile vehicles, and submarines. Immediate casualties here? 3.4 million in 45 minutes. That's counterforce. We're not even done yet. Because what happens next? What happens next is the big one. So now each side is wincing. Now each side has lost a vast majority of military resources. NATO, the West, the United States, our bases are in disarray. And so we say, what are we going to do? We have to stop the rebuilding. We have to stop the ability of the other side to wage war. We have to break their resolve. How many times do you hear that specific phraseology, by the way? You're being primed to accept that phraseology. We have to break their will, break their resolve. How was this employed in World War II? Strategic bombing campaigns. 
We don't talk about the strategic air bombing that was done in France. Yeah, that's right. Allied forces bombed cities and towns in France. Nobody ever talks about this. Same was done in London. Same was done in Germany. Obviously, was done in Japan. But each side did this. So, we come next to the counter-value plan. And under the counter-value plan, with the aim of inhibiting the other side's recovery from the initial nuclear strikes, Russia and NATO then each target the other's 30 most populated cities and economic centers. So for the U.S., that's San Francisco, New York City, Washington, D.C., L.A., Chicago. Every major city, every major economic center, population center, Phoenix, and the entire United States, Houston. They would use five to ten warheads on each city, depending on population size. Immediate casualties of a counter-value strike, 85.3 million men, women, and children vaporized in 45 minutes. And keep in mind, we're talking immediate casualties. This doesn't even get into, you think East Palestine was bad? You think a train derailing was bad? Imagine what a nuclear strike does to the waterways, to the soil, to the air. In total, 91.5 million, nearly 100 million people would be killed immediately, vaporized. That includes fatalities and injuries resulting from the series of nuclear exchanges. Deaths from nuclear fallout and other long-term effects would significantly increase this estimate. That's nuclear war. That's what we're playing with. We're playing with fire. And we're holding a gas canister to this. And we're acting like it's a blank check. We're acting like the other side is not going to respond. Well, here's the dirty little secret, folks. In war, the enemy gets a vote. That is what they teach you. Never forget that. As Mike Tyson used to say, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. When there's no more soldiers left to draft, it's when the nukes come out. Imagine the rationing. Remember how crazy the country got over toilet paper just a couple of years ago? Every system in this country will fail. Everyone. You think the roads and bridges collapsing right now are bad? You think South Africa's energy grid is bad? Imagine what would happen. You can't even. You can't even try to. I can't even try to. I don't want to imagine it. I don't want to imagine this world for my, for my kids. It's the old movie, The Day After. I feel like people have totally forgotten the fact that every single issue that you worry about and you hold near and dear to your hearts is moot and it's taken off the table with the face of nuclear war. And that is the one issue above all issues that you must work to prevent.
And so in the next segment, we are going to go back to the lessons of the Cold War, because apparently some people have forgotten this, what mutually assured destruction actually means, as I've covered in this segment. And we're going to talk about what we can learn from the Cold War and apply that to preventing World War III. And we will never stop searching for a genuine peace. But we can assure none of these things America stands for through the so-called nuclear freeze solutions proposed by some. The truth is that a freeze now would be a very dangerous fraud, for that is merely the illusion of peace. The reality is that we must find peace through strength. I would have... I would agree to a freeze if only we could freeze the Soviets' global desires. <laughs> a freeze at current levels of weapons would remove any incentive for the Soviets to negotiate seriously in Geneva and virtually end our chances to achieve the major arms reductions which we have proposed. Instead, they would achieve their objectives through the freeze. Yes, let us pray for the salvation of all of those who live in that totalitarian darkness. Pray they will discover the joy of knowing God. But until they do, let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of evil in the modern world. It was C.S. Lewis who in his unforgettable screw tape letters wrote, the greatest evil is not done now in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not even done in concentration camps and labor camps. In those we see its final result, but it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried and minuted in clear, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. Well, because these quiet men do not raise their voices, because they sometimes speak in soothing tones of brotherhood and peace, because like other dictators before them, they're always making their final territorial demand, some would have us accept them at their word and accommodate ourselves to their aggressive impulses. But if history teaches anything, it teaches that simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. It means the betrayal of our past, the squandering of our freedom. So I urge you to speak out against those who would place the United States in a position of military and moral inferiority. Through weakness and incompetence, Joe Biden has brought us to the brink of World War III. We're at the brink of World War III, just in case anybody doesn't know it. As president, I will bring back peace through strength. Peace through strength would have never happened. You could make a peace deal. You could make a deal for both right now, 24 hours. That deal could be done. That deal is waiting to be done, but there's nobody to do it. So where do we go from here? It's two paths, folks, two doors open to us. Do we want to go through the door that leads to peace, that leads to prosperity, that leads to a normalization of relations in our world? 
with other countries that maybe we don't like them. Maybe we disagree with the way they go about business. Maybe we don't understand their country. Maybe we don't like the things they say. Maybe we don't like how their governments are run. I don't always particularly like the way our government is run. But maybe, just maybe, the answer is that we don't have to be the policemen of the world. That we don't have to go out and seek enemies abroad, seek monsters abroad, as our founding fathers warned us against. Maybe, just maybe, the money that's currently being siphoned off from the U.S. taxpayer, the U.S. tax base, the funny money that's been floating throughout our system since 2008, the financialization of everything, that's being laundered through Libya, through Syria, through Iraq and Afghanistan, and now through Ukrainistan. The destabilization and enrichment of the elites off the backs of the people who suffer in the middle. Can we end this cycle? Could we actually choose peace? Because you see, this is different. Ukraine, in a very significant way, occupies a different type of conflict than any of the ones the United States has embarked in since 9-11. Now, we are in a proxy war with a nuclear power. And we've forgotten those rules, those rules of the road, those rules back from, go look at your Ronald Reagan, okay? And, and I don't always hold up Ronald Reagan's strategies as successful. Ronald Reagan uh, wasn't the best defender of the Second Amendment. Ronald Reagan supported amnesty for illegal aliens. This is one of the reasons that California is so blue today. But he did understand the threat of nuclear war and obviously was the greatest communicator. Even he understood, even he understood that the total destruction of everything meant sitting down with people that you don't have to like to prevent something worse from happening. And he held those meetings with the Soviets when they were the Soviet Union. Nixon went to the CCP, met with Chairman Mao himself, because he understood this even before Reagan. And the problem today, though, is that we live in a society without meaning, a society without substance. We're told not to build families. We're told to turn towards secular modernism. Say, hey, man, what's the next Marvel movie? What's the next Netflix series? What are you watching, man? What are you streaming? What's up on Yellowstone? What's up on 1883, 1923, 1854, whatever. The next Hollywood whatever is about to drop. It's always going to be about to drop. No one's ever going to live to see the last Star Wars, unfortunately. But in addition to a world where people are seeking meaning... They're trying to find that through conflict. They're trying to find that through cheering on conflict that they're not even directly involved in, but they want to feel like they are. Because deep down, they know that their lives are rootless. They're re living insectoid bugmen lives, going to and from work, to and from their cubicle. Nowadays, not even doing that. 
stuck inside, stuck in your home, stuck in your pod, having your food delivered to you from Uber Eats, having your one night stand delivered to you from the app of your choice on a piece of glass in your hand. You want a moment. You want substance. You want reality. And you're chasing it. You're chasing it as hard as you can. But here's the thing. For the people that are on the ground, for the families that don't have somewhere else to go back to, this isn't a movie for them. This isn't Hollywood. The people of Ukraine deserve better. The people of the world certainly deserve better. The children, the children, whether you're in the U.S. or Russia or China, are completely innocent because they always are. They always are. In war, old men send young men to die. It's just how it is. It's how it's always been. Old men's disputes are fought on the battlefield with the lives of the young. And you look at the very part of the country that's been targeted when I talk about the problems of globalization, the people of East Palestine, the people who are forgotten. That's the backbone of this country. That's the people that make this country run. Those are the people that join the military that go off to fight in those wars. Go look at Senator J.D. Vance. Perfect example from not far from there. These are the people that we owe it to. These are the kids we owe it to. These are the families we owe all of this to. And so if we're going to do the right thing, if we're actually going to be on the right side of history, we're going to say that we were the generation that didn't decide to end it all. And look, I wish I could say that we would heed the warnings of the Cold War and learn from those who came before us. And we're not going to destroy civilization, but I'm not going to pull any punches here. Hold your family close. Enjoy the pure moments while they're still here. Because the path that we're on is one of pure destruction. And unless a miracle happens, and I do believe in miracles, the end of life as we know it is getting closer and closer every day. Every moment that peace eludes us and war consumes us. God bless you. God bless your families. Ladies and gentlemen, you have my permission to lay ashore.